something to say. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. My name's Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset. And today, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about. First of all, um, the uh, new analytics suite went live for the podcast. So I have a rough idea that I am talking to people in the United States. <laughs> Who are not using Apple Podcast and who are probably listening to me on a Mac. It, it's not fine-grained, but I'm okay with that. Um, I would like to say, if you would please feel free to contact me and let me know which apps you are using to listen to the podcast. It would help me out a lot because I've noticed that I'm having issues with some, like TuneIn, that aren't updating the episodes hardly at all. So... Yeah, that's something I need to do with, deal with. But please let me know where you're listening to me from if you can. That would be awesome. I'd really like to know. <clears throat> so, on today's episode, I wanted to talk about why in space opera we always end up with something like the Federation, the Republic, the Empire, the Union, what have you. And I think it's an interesting question, especially as I'm sitting here working on the backstory and world building for the space opera project that will be coming out, hopefully in the not too distant future. Um, okay, so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is the most natural galactic empire I have ever seen is the Padishah Empire in the Dune series. Because it makes sense. The Spice Melange is required for faster-than-light space travel. Even though, yes, I know the Empire formed long before that, but the Spice is required for faster-than-light space travel. The Spice can only be mined on one world, and thus, whoever controls that world really controls intergalactic commerce, inter intergalactic travel. They, can, they control everything. And because of the nature of that universe, it only makes sense that the Padishah Empire, and later the empire that would be ruled by the God Emperor, would be able to control as much as they do. Now, when it comes to Star Trek, Star Trek, I think, is the most interesting one of these because Star Trek, in its original state, was such an optimistic endeavor, and it was being created by Gene Roddenberry around the same time as the UN really got going, which is, by the way, why... Starfleet Academy is in San Francisco because at the time that's where the UN was. It was later moved to New York. And a part of that optimism they got built in was 
that something like the UN would come into being on an intergalactic level, on an interstellar level. So we naturally get the United Federation of Planets, which if you've ever seen any of the ancillary media that goes along with it, pretty much takes its inspiration completely from the United Nations in that even its logo is essentially the UN logo with a star field in the middle of it rather than the planet Earth. I don't know that the Federation is the most logical thing, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but it's very much a part of the ideology that Gene Roddenberry was trying to get um, through with his creation of the series. This idea where we try to go for negotiation first, we try to work out our problems with words rather than fighting, even though, as those of us who have seen the original series know, fighting often does ensue. And it made for a contrast to the other more totalitarian governments that we meet in both the Klingon and the Romulan empires. Now, having said that, the main reason for the existence of the Federation is to, well, be there. It's part of the intrinsic idea of the series that people would come together in unison for the sake of diplomacy, and thus the Federation is the natural outgrowth of that philosophy. The Union in Seth MacFarlane's The Orville, that's an awkward sentence to say, sorry about that, um, too many these. Anyway, um, the Union basically exists because the Federation exists, and that show at least in its original conception, is an obvious pastiche of Star Trek. And so, as such, it must have a federation. The Empire, in George Lucas's Star Wars, must exist. It really has to. The fiction that inspired a lot of the elements of Star Trek either was either came from the Flash Gordon serials where you have Mongo, the evil realm controlled by Ming the Merciless, or you had the samurai movies of Akira Kurosawa, which were often set juxtaposed to the various shogunates or emperors that ruled Japan. And thus, aesthetically, for the story to work, the idea that you would have an evil empire only makes sense. The story is about a rebel alliance fighting against an evil empire. When you transpose that onto a galactic scale, obviously you're going to get a galactic empire. But it is a purely aesthetic choice. He could have made it into a nation-state of any other configuration. It didn't necessarily have to be an empire. When you look at how much of the first couple movies were inspired by World War II footage, and you can see the iconography of, well, Nazi fascism 
and Italian fascism being put in, both of those did have imperialistic... Hmm. Well, they just were imperialistic. I was going to say ideologies, but it was beyond ideology. It, just, it was so fundamental to the idea of what those political thoughts were that they're really... <laughs> you take it's not even ideological it's just fundamental to the way of thinking <clears throat> even if you didn't add imperialism in to the mix ideologically speaking it would be a natural outgrowth of that way of thought and there's nothing more fascistic than an empire by its very nature you have one singular person in power and a bureaucracy that enforces their will by an iron-clad system. So, what we've come to at this point is basically three main reasons why you would have a federation, an empire, or a republic. Once you get be, which I guess I should just simply restate them, would be either for intense world-building reasons... If Arrakis is the only place to get spice, whoever controls Arrakis controls the empire. So, it's inevitable that an empire would form, even if it was just the spacing guild controlling everything. It would eventually happen. When you look at Star Trek, we have the philosophical reason, because we are wanting to tell a story in which we are primarily concerned with diplomacy and finding ways to act in a nonviolent manner. And in Star Wars, we have an aesthetic reason. It only makes sense within the type of story, visually, to have the heroes fighting against an evil empire. By making it into an empire, it raises the stakes and gives us a method whereby we can easily resolve the situation by merely killing the Empire in the third, the Emperor in the third film. No Emperor, no Empire. It, it's a simple formulation, even if it is overly simplistic, but it's one that works and makes aesthetic sense within the story framework that you're going for. Now, if we are trying to think about what an actual interstellar organization would look like should one arise, I think we have some problems in that this is where not only are we going into the realm of pure speculation, but we have to kind of throw out everything that we know, mainly because we all exist on Earth, we are all human biologically, therefore we are hardwired to understand various notions in a very specific way. We all see, for, for the most part, the same spectrum of light. We all hear in the same frequency of sound. We have all come from similar stock, which gave us similar instincts from, through which we interpret our emotions and our reactions. Our cultures may differ, but our biology does not. <clears throat> the first main problem that you have when dealing with an interstellar alliance of any, of any form is you no longer have that baseline on which to build. 
the species are distinct and have a completely different biological imperative and how they act and how they see the world. We can actually see this played out fully in Star Trek, where we have the humans who developed much like we did, but with a third world war that hopefully will not happen, and all of the torment and pain that it brought. We have the Vulcans who nearly destroyed themselves and gave themselves completely over to logic because their emotions and passions needed to be reined in because they tended to act impulsively and violently. We have the Endorians who do act impulsively and violently at almost every turn, but they have found a way without having to give up all emotion to create a stable society for themselves through concepts such as honor and trust. The Tellarites have a predisposition to argumentation and actually see politeness as a weakness. So you cannot be polite to them. Some of the best episodes of the Enterprise series were actually the ones that dealt with the differences between the species as they were and showed how they found ways to work with each other when that wasn't easy. Because they didn't just have cultural differences to get past. It wasn't merely an issue of worldview. It was an issue of biology. The way a Vulcan or a Tellarite or an Andorian or a human perceive the world is very different, and thus made a lot of the commonalities that we take for granted here on our planet even harder to come to. Because, well, the basic assumptions of each civilization was different, because their biology was different. That made for some really compelling television, and like I said, some of the best stories that they did on Enterprise, and Part of me kind of wishes they had focused more on that instead of the temporal Cold War and the Zindi and, you know, all that stuff that they did that didn't really work. And then they kind of threw all that out and did that other series and the show got pretty good in season four and then got canceled because nobody was watching it by then. But when you actually start trying to contemplate what it would take to get people of different species to be able to communicate with each other you really start to see the differences and the problems that would be brought about by trying to craft some type of interstellar union. But is realism really what we're going for in our space opera? If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. We have to remember what we lie about is important. We're going to have to make up stuff in our fiction. And... The more we can ground ourselves in some semblance of reality, the less we have to actually make up. The less we have to make up, the less we're actually asking our readers and viewers to suspend their disbelief. Now, how does that work with Star Trek? Now, the reason I go to Star Trek as opposed to something like Star Wars is very simple. Star Wars is asking you to believe in magic. It is. The Force, no matter what you want to do with it, no matter how you want to define it, is magic. 
And it is something that exists and pervades the universe of Star Wars. Once you get somebody to accept that magic exists, well, any of the other things that you want to throw on top, it makes it just that much easier to believe those, because I've already accepted that there are these knights who can intercept laser blasts with a sword made of pure energy and throw things around by waving their hands. Once you get past that, the idea that, oh, and once upon a time there was a galactic federation called the Republic that controlled and ruled everything before it fell and became the Empire. That's easy. That's a much easier sell because I've already sold you space wizards. But Star Trek, it has a much harder road to walk. And other than the pure cost of having to put a extended family of aliens on the bridge crew, this is one of the reasons why most of the characters that we meet are human, or at least very human in appearance. When it comes to the original series, the only member of the bridge crew who wasn't human was Spock, and he was half-human, and all they had to do was put some ears on Leonard Nimoy, so the cost wasn't prohibitive. By the time we get to the next generation, we get two characters that aren't human. We get Worf, who has some uh, has an appliance added to his forehead and nose that make him distinctly not human, and Data, who gets body paint and contacts put in so that he looks like an alien. Well, an android. We don't see a lot of other characters running around in of various races. You actually see an interesting correction to this in the animated series that came out, wherein we have a three-armed, three-legged alien on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And a Cation, you know, a cat person, taking the place of Uhura because Nichelle Nichols didn't come back to reprise the role. But that show is animated. It costs the same amount to draw a Catwoman as it does to draw a human woman. So, if we're being honest, the real reason we don't see a lot of aliens on the bridge of the Enterprise was cost. This is also one of the reasons why we probably don't get to know a lot of the bridge crew and other characters in Star Trek Discovery. They decided to really embrace the alienness of the Federation, and... Well, most of our bridge crew are either human, near-human, possibly human-ish, but with augmentations? We don't actually see a lot of humans on the bridge, and thus we don't spend a lot of time with their characters. I think that that's a sad thing. We also see this when it comes to the Orville, for the same reason. Let's try to ignore budget for a minute. <laughs> I know it's going to be a hard thing to do, because this is when you kind of have to suspend another layer of disbelief just for sake of argument, but why is it that we always get a human captain? Except for that one time when Saru was in charge of the Discovery for a brief period of time as acting captain. Well, as we saw with that, Saru's basic biology 
changed the way he was making his decisions. He could sense death, he could sense trouble coming, and thus, with that additional sense, he made choices that a human captain wouldn't. Now, start magnifying that out with the, a bridge crew of predominantly aliens. Each one would be coming from not just a different cultural background, but from a different biological background. They would be perceiving everything through a lens that is unique to them. Thus, in series, you have a valid reason why you have ships that are predominantly crewed by Vulcans, ships that are predominantly crewed by humans, and all around the board. It's honestly easier when they have a shared biology to be able to be together. Now, that's a very unsatisfactory answer, and one that I'm sure Gene Roddenberry would dispute. And he would rely very heavily on, well, the budget. Because, like I said, when you see the animated series, you realize he kind of wanted more aliens running around than what we got in the original series. So having said that, what would it take to actually get all of these people together? And is... Is something like the Federation a natural outgrowth? Now, when we look at the way things actually work on Earth with our various systems of international governance, what we see primarily are treaty organizations. We see things like NATO. That makes actually a lot of sense to see in a space setting. Groups of star systems who have come together for mutual defense and pledged to defend one another should any be attacked. That makes a lot of sense. We see something like the World Trade Organization, which kind of governs a lot of the rules as far as interstellar trade between the systems that are involved. That would make sense in this kind of a setting. And then we look at something like the European Union. Now, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but the European Union is interesting in that it's one of the first attempts we've really seen on Earth to have a supranational governmental organization come about. The United Nations is not. Yes, it handles a lot of treaties, and those treaties are enforceable within their own methods of doing so, but they cannot pass a law that thus governs everyone, unless it comes to the internet, but that's a whole other subject, mainly because the IPA, are, I believe that's the acronym, the International Treaty, uh, anyway, the, the internet is, a, is technically governed by an international body, technically. The U.S. kind of controls it, and everybody really knows that. But we don't see, in our own experience, any supernatural, super, see, there I go, I knew I was going to say that, supranational governmental organizations coming about because people become very mm, wedded to the concept of sovereignty. This is something that isn't really addressed in most science fiction. Though, I'm sure there are stories out there, and if you know of any that you would like to recommend, I would love to see them. Sovereignty is a crazy idea. And it's 
one of two ideas that kind of we take for granted, but they don't really mean anything. They're the polite fictions that we put over various concepts to try to tie them all together in a bow. One is sovereignty, and the second is nation. What is a nation? A nation is different from a state. And I don't know if you know that or not. A state does not have to be a nation. A state that has a nationalistic identity is a nation. I'm not going to get into all of that. If you want me to do an episode on nationalism and what that means for fiction, I definitely can do that, but only by request, because that's going to be a really complex subject to dig into. But these twin ideas of sovereignty and nationalism, which came about separately, sovereignty is a concept that really comes into its own in the 15 and 1600s around the time of the Reformation, when in Europe, we have a lot of question as to who's actually in charge. Is it the Holy Roman Emperor? Is it the Pope? Who's actually the person in charge here? And this question of sovereignty basically devolves Europe into hundreds of years of war as independent city-states and small regional states come about and start debating as to what they actually are. It's not until the middle to late 1800s leading into the First World War that the idea of nationalism starts to take hold. We see this very prominently in the work of Otto, Otto von Bismarck, and if you don't know much about him, Extra History did a really good series about him that you might want to check out on their YouTube channel, on the Extra Credits YouTube channel. Simply put, Bismarck dreamed of a unified German state in which all people who spoke German lived. Now, this ignored the fact that the various German city-states that existed up to this point had distinctive cultures and, well, weren't a unified people. This is where nationalism really comes into its own and tells the sweet lie that we are all one people. Once you start sipping from the nationalism Kool-Aid, it gets kind of hard to not drink from it anymore. Now, it is possible for that kind of a story to build itself in an interstellar alliance. We see this very clearly with the Federation, where people see themselves as citizens of the Federation and have adopted it as a national identity with all of the trappings of nationalism thrown in. We see flags, we see the seals of state, and we see the nationalistic rhetoric about, well, the Federation's better than the Klingon Empire, blah, blah, blah. That is a harder thing to accomplish than most science fiction world building gives it credit. So, I don't know if sovereignty and nationalism are something that would necessarily be something that would be done away with. But international treaty organizations, that is a much more interesting idea, and possibly the way that I will go with the science fiction that I'm currently building. Maybe. 
I might get a little philosophical and throw something else in, you know, go the Roddenberry route. But at least at this point, that's where I'm leaning. I'd love to know what your thoughts on this are. If you enjoyed this podcast and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or this podcast, please do so. That helps me out a lot. That tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you got a buck you can throw my way, down in the show notes, you'll see a support on Anchor link. If you click that, you can join the project at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That helps out a lot. Helps me to do everything that I do. If you don't have the money, that's okay. You can share the podcast with somebody else and help spread the word that way. That helps out a lot too. If you have a question, comment, or topic you'd like to hear me discuss on the show, please go to anchor.fm, download the app, follow Project Shadow, and then you'll see a button that says voice message. If you click that, you leave me up to a one minute message and I would love to get more of those. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show. If you'd like to contact me on social media, Twitter's really the best place. I'm CE Dorset over there. You can find a link to my Twitter and all my social media and everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. This is the kind of show that I really enjoy doing and I would like to do more of. So if you have any suggestions on topics that you would like me to discuss, please bring them to my attention because I really want this podcast to be a community resource and something that's good and helpful for everybody. And that involves some feedback. So if you have anything that you would like me to talk about, please let me know. Until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.